The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but is a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership. The limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome, partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Dave Holman of Katahdin Property Management. Dave, thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. Excited to be here. Well, awesome. Yeah, we're, I'm excited to hear kind of your journey here. Talk a little bit about your property management business, but I guess, but let's start off. Let's get a little bit of background about you. Tell me about your journey. How did you get to where you are? Sure. Uh, circuitously with lots of, you know, uh, new starts and dead ends and things like that. So I was, you know, from Portland, Maine area, you know, grew up here, ended up going to college out in Minnesota. I think I took one econ class in my entire college uh, high school education. I wasn't thinking about, you know, starting businesses. I didn't know what a limited partner meant or anything like that. But I did get interested in green design and green building. And I took some architecture classes in college and spent the next four years down in Bolivia in South America, like most of us always do. Ended up starting a chain of camping stores down there uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, who I had met there. You know, so she's Bolivian and that's what led me down there. And by the time we had three stores and 10 employees, I figured I started, I needed to learn something about business and economics. <laughs> Clearly it's enough of it's intuitive that you don't have to have a degree to, uh, you know, do these things, but came back to Maine in 2009 and uh, got my MBA, you know, here at the University of Maine in Portland and met the person who ended up being my business partner in, in like the first day of my first class, Brian Sprague, he's a retired Navy officer who was getting his MBA at that time. And, you know, we just bonded over over beers after class and kind of tracked together throughout the program and stayed in touch afterwards. And a while later, when I had a full-time job and had 32 units that you know other people were managing for me while I was doing that job, I really knew that I had to start my own management company. So I reached out to him and he was crazy enough to accept. So we formed Katahdin Property Management. Katahdin being the name of the mountain that ends the Appalachian Trail. We're both really into hiking here in Maine. So it was a good fit for us. And um, we now have six employees. We're managing over 130 units and that's growing pretty quickly. About two-thirds residential, a third commercial. And I got into real estate in 2011 as a limited partner. My best friend from undergraduate reached out to me. He had become a developer. Uh, he had started working with this group of developers in Minneapolis. And, you know, he sent me this, you know, friends and family offering. You know, again, I knew nothing about 506B or, or any of these sort of things now. You know, I had done stock investing and I knew that six, seven, eight percent, pretty good return on average. And this private offering was offering like 18% returns year over year when you combine the cash flow and the appreciation. And I just thought that sounds kind of like a scam or something, but I trust my friend. I know him well. I know he wouldn't be associated with fraudsters or whatever. So I said, you know what? I, I'll give you, you know, this little inheritance I got recently. Here's 20 grand. If I keep it, I'll just spend it. So I better invest it. Here you go. And sure enough, they started giving out quarterly reports as they were building, you know, this hundred unit apartment building in Minneapolis. And then I started getting dividend distribution checks uh, every quarter as they filled it up. And over the years, that got me interested. I learned about it, got me into real estate investing. And then I started up here in Maine with just a single family home, partnering with family, and then another one 
one. Then I bought my own three unit and started partnering with other investors to buy bigger and bigger buildings. And you know, so I've now been a GP, a general partner on five syndication projects of larger real estate investments where I've you know pooled capital among friends and family and other folks and bought some pretty neat buildings in in downtowns, you know, here in Maine. So that's basically bringing you up to speed. And now that same friend from Minnesota and I are working on a new construction project here in Maine. So that'll be my first new construction. Everything I've done up to now is value add, you know, historic uh, renovation style buildings. That's really interesting. So outside of your partner that you met at MBA school, are you using any of your MBA skills currently? Yes, every day. I would say there's two areas that to me are very critical. You don't have to learn them in school though, but one is organizational development, aka team building, how to be a good boss, you know, how to attract really talented, hardworking people to your team who could get paid more elsewhere, being a sort of quality of life business. I mean, that's my goal. And and I think we're succeeding in that where we now have what I consider to be a really star-studded cast of people who are all kind of smart, high performers, you know, smarter than me. And they're doing stuff with us, even though any of them could probably go out elsewhere and get paid double what they're making with us, you know, because A, we're offering ownership in some of the buildings we're buying, which is kind of neat. And B, we're doing this in a fun and humane way. They can work their own hours. You know, there's a lot more flexibility in what we're doing than what I think a lot of nine to five jobs can offer. So organizational development, you know, is a huge one. And then statistics. In my senior year of undergraduate, I, you know, I was forced to take a math class. They weren't going to let me graduate without it. And I took the standard, you know, statistics for dummies called applied statistics. Turned out to be one of the best classes I've ever taken, recommended to anyone. Just being able to think in terms of probabilities and understanding the meaning of those probabilities. And I mean, that alone is far more useful math than any, you know, calc or trig, you know, to the average person. And that was a very eye-opening class that's helped me a lot in real estate investing. That's a good tip there. Statistics, demographers, there's so many things that impact the value of a property going forward that are not necessarily tied to current operations. That's a really good point. In terms of, you mentioned green design and building. Are you using any of that in your current projects? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, about 40% of global emissions are real estate based, either from the operation of real estate or the construction of real estate. So we are the problem (laughs) and we need to be the solution. And so what I like to do with buildings, you know, I'm developing a playbook that works very well up here in Maine, which is that, you know, we've relied on oil as the primary heating fuel for the past 80, 100 years. And it's getting increasingly uneconomical to do that. And it's it's a risk, basically. It's a, it's a pain point. Right now, people that are relying on oil are, you know, paying through the nose compared to even last winter. And that's a major problem. So, and a lot of the reason you need to heat a building is fixable, you know, with stuff called insulation. If you're a landlord who is paying the heat for your tenants, you know, insulation is going to be your best friend. And every dollar you invest into insulation is probably going to earn you 10 or 20 in terms of driving building value through increasing your NOI, lowering your expenses, and just straight up lowering your heating bills. I mean, usually when I insulate a basement or an attic, I'm seeing a 50 to 100% annual return on that investment right away. But it's not sexy. You can't see it from the outside. It's not really something people brag, oh, my attic is R60 insulation. You know, you don't hear that. But it matters. I mean, it really matters. And if you don't do it, you're literally throwing money out the window. But it's just something a lot of landlords and managers, they just take what they're given. They say, oh, okay, the heating costs six grand a year. It's oil heating. Great. I'm going to pay that forever. They're done. They don't think about it. They don't think, oh, wait, could I switch to heat pumps and take that six grand off of the landlord, put it on to tenants? That actually lets me 
either keep the rents flat or even lower them a little bit. I get better tenants. I'm more competitive. And my NOI looks a lot better. And I have an amenity that tenants really want, which provides AC and dehumidification and filtration and all these great things. You know, looking at heating and cooling, I think is a huge part of what we need to do, you know, as property managers, as real estate investors in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really good point really to focus on too, is that as you think about the future of the value of properties, there are a lot of things, you know, like oil costs, like you have no idea what that's going to be next week, much less five years from now. There are things that investors are now looking at, like ESG, we've talked about it on some other shows, but it's important. They're making long-term bets on properties and the values and what how these properties are built and constructed and where they are on what the value of that property is going to be down the road. In your example, if you're the landlord and you're paying $6,000 a month in heating cost, right? And then oil prices double in the next year, which could happen. That's now 12. And that's completely, you can't model that. Hey, I mean, you can, but you can't expect it. And that's real. Yeah. It is funny when we make performance, you just see everyone with a linear 3% that's right. extrapolation of it coming expenses or, or 2.8 or you know whatever people want to use. Reality is never that. It's always different in different ways. And, and I think we're heading into an era of inflation where 3% will feel tame and ludicrous. I mean, it, certainly in our area, expense and income and rent, you know, inflation has been running in the 8 to 12% range per year for the past five years. And now it's in the 20 to 30% range. So to think that 3% is an accurate performa is, is tricky because that's what the banks and the appraisers still want. They're not going to change their ways just based on an errant year or two yet, but it doesn't model reality in the right ways. So I think we're doing more you know, scenarios, looking at just different extremes and making sure that on the bad extremes, hey, what if interest rates go up a couple hundred basis points to deal with this inflation? That's going to affect some projects. So I think that would be an important question you know, for LPs to ask of GPs, you know, how are you looking at interest rates? How are you looking at inflation of expenses and these kind of things going forward? But ultimately, you know, operating costs are not a sexy part of business, but they're critical. It blends perfectly with ESG because we're all just looking at efficiency and efficiency is what is going to drive profits. And the more efficient we can be and use less heat to keep people cozy, the better. And that comes down to design. And if you can design a building with lots of south facing windows and lots of insulation and you plan to have a long hold period, you're going to reap the benefits of whatever extra you're probably paying up front uh, in terms of lower operating costs and then ultimately better appraisals, better cash out refis, you know, better sale at the end of the day. For our listeners, this may seem a little bit like a tangent, but I think it's a really important point. You know, as you think about an investment that you're going into, and, and in this example, we're talking about real estate, there are certain assumptions that are built into a model for the property, for the project going forward that you really need to get your mind around and understand that like, yeah, you, you might just see like a steady state, like, yeah, they're accounting for inflation or increases in costs and it's 3% and it's modeled every year and you can see it. But there's a lot of things that are unknown and from an operating perspective and the best operators are trying to figure out a way to take the unknown and make them known. So, you know, in a prior life, another good example is I was in renewables. We did solar and we had developers come talk to us about solar on large multifamily properties because they're like, hey, look, we don't know what our electric bill is going to be next year. And if we can model this out and we can put solar on it, we can predict to a certain degree, a high likelihood, here comes your statistics again, the sun is going to shine. Then we can model out how much electricity we use and how much we can do in insulation. And then we can start making what they call an uncontrollable cost, a controllable cost. And that makes a big difference in your 
ability to sell this project down the road because you can actually look at the numbers and say, these are real. You can't have somebody poking holes in your models and your projections. But as an LP, I think as a passive investor, I think you're bringing this point to light. There are certain things that probably just get glossed over that are unsexy, that if you spend a few minutes looking at and understand like, hey, here's some risk, right? Energy prices, any of the other operating costs that just have these like subtle 3% increases, anything that has to do with wages right now, I would be very, very leery of small 3% increases in wages because that's not where the market is right now. So great points. Absolutely. In the real estate environment, the clear and obvious trend, at least to me, who's trying to look at this with binoculars, is towards electrification of everything. You know, fossil fuels are just not going to be a part of building construction in 20 or 30 years from now. As you're buying buildings and building buildings, like, do you recognize that? And do you chart a path towards that? Because to your point, the baseload electric generation prices in the US are not spiky. You know, they're very stable. They're on an upward trend in most places, but they're going to be a very safe bet compared to natural gas. Relies on fracking, which relies on laws that politicians could change. It relies on just the easy supply. It relies on investment in big companies. It relies on international politics and Russia and, you know, all these different things that are way out of your control. Whereas baseload, you know, electric grid pricing is going to be pretty stable and hopefully be driven down as we get sort of small nuclear back into the picture. Picture as we get solar and wind, you know, ramped up, you know, and seeing better economies of scale in those technologies. And I think working them into buildings is great whenever you can, because you're going to control your costs and that'll make for, you know, more profit down the road, but you're also doing the right thing environmentally. Your building is not a source of pollution and, you know, lung cancer. That That's a pretty important thing too. Great points. You know, as we kind of transition here, I want to get into some of this property management aspects of it, because it's important is the property manager for a limited partner that's investing in a real estate deal. Property Property management is one of the key aspects and, and really one of the key team members that your GP needs to have in the picture. I'd, I'd love to get, I mean, you're obviously in the space, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. I couldn't agree more. I think the property management can make or break your investment. I think a good manager can make a, a lackluster property perform well. And more importantly, vice versa, a bad manager can make a great property perform poorly. So those are the ones that I've seen LPs get burned on. And I luckily have not personally been burned on a project, but you know, I just met with a very experienced investor who's done dozens of syndication investments. And one of his first, the property manager was inappropriately just taking a lot of profits and they were marking things up and they were using it as a way for them to generate extra income and allocating expenses inappropriately. And, and that is something that is really tricky. I think anytime you're making an investment, the most important thing is looking at you know the GP side and being sure that they're going to work with responsible people. And inevitably, anyone who's in business is going to come across bad contractors, suppliers, partners at what some point or whatever. And that's not a question. The question is, can you recognize it and can you fix it quickly? But I think as a property manager, I started managing things myself. Then I went, you know, I inherited one when I bought 27 units, they came with a property manager. So I was like, okay, ain't broke. Don't fix it. I'll just keep him on. And I was like, oh, it kind of is broke. I'm getting like C's and D's. And I want to get A's. 
So I went to a company that I thought would be better, a third-party management company, but they were not very tech-savvy and tech-forward. They weren't great at their bookkeeping. And very quickly, things got backed up and, and I could see that this was not the solution for me. And I had heard from a friend you know, who's the syndicator in Minneapolis that they have their own property management and they do it to control risk, just like they do you know, with energy prices. For me, having my own property management company is my primary risk control method. You know, when a tenant reports to me that stairs are loose or a railing is loose that they're using to get up and down, we can fix it before they break their skull and have a million dollar lawsuit on hand. If an apartment is vacant and we want to fill it, you know, to get a better return, I mean, we can set the price lower. We can give incentives. We can do extra marketing. You know, we can control those variables. Whereas when we're, we were in the hands of a third party, it was managing the manager and I was not finding the experience to be very fulfilling. I think there's great third-party managers out there all across the country. You know, you need to find them and, and work with them if you're going third-party. And there's great, you know, in-house managers across the country. And uh, the people, to me, are, are the key piece of it. If you have good leadership in those positions who are trying to run a sustainable business based on long-term relationships, they're not just in it for themselves and out to squeeze every ounce of profit out of things, that's a good sign to me that, you know, you're partnered with the right people. There's a lot to property management as well. Like one being, are they in your space, right? Just because somebody does commercial real estate and they're focused on offices doesn't mean that they're going to be good at multifamily. As a matter of fact, it means they'll probably be terrible. And then two, you know, thinking about multifamily again, right? Because that's kind of the path we're on. You know, if you're renting out or leasing out an A apartment versus a, a B or a C, it's a different process. It's a different marketing tool. It, you know, there's a lot of differences. So I think when you're looking for your property management, Managers, or you're talking with your GP about the property manager, you know, just asking some questions about like, okay, great. You found somebody that works in the space. What have they done before? Right. And if you go look at the, the apartments and the communities and the neighborhoods and everything looks very similar, like that's a great sign. If you look at them and they're all like D units or they're all A units, you know, like I think there's some questions that you need to ask. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you need the right mentality and philosophy, you know, that aligns with what you're trying to do. And, you know, our company, we, we manage for some third-party folks and we take on extra units, but we also say no, depending on the situation. We're not interested in working for a slumlord. Yes, we could make money by working with someone who is a little bit slippery, but it's not worth it to us to do that. Whereas some companies will take, you know, whatever comes flopping over the side of the boat, you know, whether it's legal catch or not. We're in Maine, so we have to use like lobstering metaphors for everything. But yeah, I think it's really important that you understand the niche you're in. We operate across a lot of different asset classes in our company because those are just the kind of buildings I've bought and need to manage. And I do, I would say that one company can do great across, I mean, every single asset class, because ultimately you need to be a good customer service agent for the tenants. And, you know, the leasing is different, um, but ultimately the customer service is pretty darn similar, where if they have a leak, doesn't matter if it's a class A apartment, class D or, or a retail store, you better go get someone to fix the leak quickly if you're a good manager. So the operations side of it, I think is very similar, whereas to your point, the marketing and leasing is quite different. But I'd rather work with someone I trust who's a generalist than kind of get burned by a specialist who's not going to deliver on what they're promising or not putting me in, in a high enough priority in their list of priorities that the performance, you know, will justify it. And frankly, we're in a small market, you know, so we have to be diversified. We, there's not enough retail spaces to have just a retail manager in our little area. I think most of the folks 
companies that you know I see here are, are pretty diversified. And I'm sure that's true in all the sort of third tier cities and, and markets around the country. And the bigger ones in Houston, yeah, you absolutely can get someone who's specialized in class B multifamily and that's the bread and butter. And there's someone else that does the industrial and, and the retail. I think another point that you brought up, which I really like, is that a great property manager can take a, a poor asset and turn it into a great one. And I mean, the reality is, is that probably 90% of the deals that you're going to look at as a GP or an LP would be a value add, right? You're looking to take a property that's underperforming and get it up to its maximum potential. And you need somebody that can do that. The management is critical. That's how I've been able to be successful as a syndicator. It's very hard to find buildings that are just a discount, a deal. You know, the seller just didn't realize how much they should have charged for it. I mean, once in a blue moon, you'll get that. You know, one of the secrets to getting it is if it's listed with a broker who is not a specialist in that asset class. You know, so if you've got a residential broker doing a commercial property, I mean, that's when I get to feast because they don't have, you know, the performa worked up in quite the right way, or they don't know what the market rents are for office or these kind of different things. But in general, the property is the property. You can only add so much value physically, you know, to change that. But a lot of times the leases, the management, the way they're constructed, that is where you can move the needle on paper very quickly. You know, you don't need to wait years and years and, and those kind of things. If your leases are all either month to month or one year type of situations, you know, especially in residential, we see this where people are 50% under market or something like that. We don't take a hatchet, we take a scalpel and we say, okay, who can get close to market? Who is really grandma on fixed income and is not appropriate or possible to get them there? And then how do we, you know, make those directional decisions of who's staying, who probably needs to move on and that sort of thing. To me, it's a very human-based nuanced thing that if you're coming in and just ripping everyone out of the building because they're under market, that's not the kind of project I want to be involved with, even if it's the most profitable. It's not good for the community. It's something that, and ultimately, I don't think those are the most profitable. I've found that, hey, you know, for me, we're 100% occupied residentially right now. And that's partly the market, but we were that way, you know, or close to it before the market got really hot. And it's because we're we're very thoughtful about who's going where and how to do it rather than, okay, here's the formula for this building. Just go follow it. You get kind of underperformance when that happens. Kind of wrapping up this topic because I, I'm really passionate about property managers because I've had some single family residentials on my own where we've gotten the either flat or 3% increases because that's what the tenant could bear, quote unquote, from the property manager. They never even looked at market, right? You know, you see you get years down the road when you go renew the lease and all of a sudden you're at 50% higher rents. You're like, what happened for those years in the past where I got nothing? Yeah, that happens a lot. And, you know, we build our leases to incorporate, you know, if neither side does anything, there's an automatic greater of 3% or the local CPI, you know, is calculated by the Fed, which is nowhere near the real market rent increases. But generally speaking, you know, we're not always trying to get our existing tenants up 30%. If market went up 30%, you know, we're, we're content to do the six or seven that CPI is showing right now. And then when there's turnovers, we get it right up to market. But we're not just keeping it flat at two or three. And that would be advice I'd give to everyone right now is if, if you haven't been writing your leases to be the greater of X or CPI, you better start because CPI is not going to be 3% this year and probably next. So you're losing. And I've seen buildings that I didn't buy them and, and they were a terrible deal because they were kneecapped by 20 and 30 year commercial leases that had a 2% escalator. And it translates to within 10 or 12 years, you're way under market and with no hope of getting to market if that tenant stays. I guess to wrap up the show, I always want to focus on gratitude because I think it's really important. And bringing to mind somebody in your life that's helped you 
get to where you are? You know, who would you like to give a shout out to? Yeah, that's, that, that's great. I, I appreciate you doing that in the show. And uh, today I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Mike Line. He's a local developer who with no profit motive or incentive of his own kind of took me under his wing when I had admittedly gotten out over my skis on a project that was very complicated, historic tax credit renovation, you know, very complex project that he had a lot of experience with. And he was just very friendly, very helpful, generous with his time. So, you know, chancing into people like that who can kind of be a guide and a mentor, you know, has been terrific. I think that's helped me get where I am. Well, awesome. Well, hopefully Mike will hear this. Dave, thank you. This has been a great show. I've learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Definitely, Jake. Thanks for having me on and uh, thanks for uh, this opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.